Welcome to The Hive from Tejitosa Sustainable Travel, a podcast for meaningful travel stories. We invite guests who have traveled abroad for more than just leisure travel, be it internships, volunteering, or study abroad, either as solo travelers or as part of a group. We also talk to local communities who receive and host these travelers and measure their impact. This is a podcast chronicling sustainable travel. My name is Wesley Maraire, Business Development Executive at Territorial Sustainable Travel and your host of The Hive. Today I'm joined by Mike. Mike and I met on Clubhouse and he always has insightful knowledge to spew out. He describes himself as an artist and uses his art to heal. He's a sustainable travel activist and the founder of 10 Gates System and a GPS for the soul of travel. Destinations can use these 10 Gates in order to enhance the way that they provide travel and lead to sustainability within, within travel. He's been in the industry since the age of 15 and I'll let him give you his age now so that you can gauge for yourself how long he's been in the industry. But the turning point was in 1991 when he was working in Mexico, where he got a profound appreciation of culture, which led him down the path of sustainability within travel. Mike, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you, Wesley. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I, I enjoy your program. I I'm uh, uh, in awe, I'm in awe of your passion to what you do, and I'm proud to be part of this show. Brilliant, brilliant, Mike. I want us to start from the very top uh, to contextualize what we're going to talk about today, and just give me how you approach this topic of sustainability and travel. It tends to mean a lot of things to different people, and with it comes a lot of misconception. And I want to use this, this platform in order for us to you know, dispel some of the myths, but more so to give insight, particularly to travels, to, to travelers, as well as to operators, so that we can get some sort of uh, campus that we can use as we move towards sustainability. Great. Well, you know, I think from, from our standpoint, um, you know, when I uh, look at how do you define sustainability? How do you define sustainable travel? It's it's quite complicated to a lot of people, but to me, it's a it's a very simple thing. All right, it's it's um, the being conscious, being aware and conscious and present in your thoughts, no matter what you're doing, that you have a responsibility to both Mother Earth and to the occupants, the cultures that were here, particularly the indigenous cultures that were here first. And the model that I've learned over the years, particularly from the indigenous, is that if you make decisions about, about actions you're going to take, no matter what they are, if you look ahead seven generations and you understand consciously that the decision you're going to make today, no matter what it is, is going to impact 
the next seven generations at least. Then you shift your mindset from being um, kind of a, a self-fulfilling, self-actualized uh, person who's just, you know, looking for the self-gratification of doing something today to really worrying about what, what and how is this going to impact future generations. And that immediately change, changes your mindset and therefore your behavior changes. And uh, I think sustainability is very personal, very personal. It's not up to other organizations or other people to fix the problem. It's up to us to manage it and manage it um, within our own capability and our own resources for that matter. Right. You often hear at the SDG University, you know, Jeffrey Saxon says, leave no one behind. And we say the 17 goals are the starting point. And as you rightly put that we have to think about, you know, seven generations to come. However, playing a bit of devil's advocate there, a poacher, we are facing, we're facing rhino extinction. And a poacher might say, you know, dinosaurs are extinct and life goes on. That person is probably not thinking, you know, seven generations from, from now, or they would actually uh, argue that seven generations from now, we won't have changed much even after the rhino has gone extinct. You know, what do we say about such? Um, when you look at the Khoi and the Sun people, uh, the, the Bushmen, their, their, their tribes are dwindling and so are other indigenous uh, societies around the world. And there are people who say, you know, good riddance. And so I, I put it to you to say, how do we address something like that? Well, I mean, first of all, it, it actually, um, it breaks my heart when I see what's happening to um, the animal kingdom and the failure of conservation in so many ways, in so many places on the planet. Um, you know, the rhinos, I know that, that you know, the, there are two white rhinos left. I mean, can you imagine how awful it is to be in a position where, where we, we, that's what we can show as humanity, that we're so incapable and ignorant about culture and species that we allow something like that to happen in a lot of cases so that somebody can uh, have a trophy on their wall. I mean, that's like just wrong. And if I look at, you know, if I look at the situation like the sustainable development goals you're talking about, the United Nations, and as we know, and you said, there are 17 sustainable development goals. Well, you know, not all of those goals are apl applicable to every destination. And I think part of the challenge, and I work regularly with UNESCO uh, Canada, so I, so I work with this every day. I work with the Sustainable Development Goals. We just created a new project, a destination marketing organization here in Canada, in Ontario, where I live. And it's, it, we created this. It's called the Niagara Escarpment for sustainable travel. And 
it is within the um, geographical boundaries of a UNESCO Niagara biosphere. So we worked with UNESCO to identify which of the 17 goals are practical and really applicable to the work that we're doing. In all, there's 11. So already 11 of the 17 are our focus. Then we have three distinct regions. This biosphere, the Niagara biosphere, stretches about 750 kilometers. So it's a good size biosphere. There are three distinct ecosystems that we, we identify. The Carolinian forest is one. Then there's the watershed, uh, you know, high, highest point of the escarpment. And then there's where the indigenous uh, program that we're organizing is in the Bruce, in the Bruce Peninsula. And what, what we're doing now is we're analyzing the, from the 11 of the 17, which of those are applicable. And I think you're going to end up with two or three, or maybe at the outside four, in an area that are going to be unique to that area. I mean, they have to be. So immediately, your concentration and your focus is more manageable. We're then moving to this to the um, Global Sustainable Travel Council, to their framework, and we're analyzing that to see which of their uh, certification steps are applicable and also the Destinations International, which certifies the destination itself. So what we're working on is creating a living laboratory so that people can come, teach, practice, share, learn, and then go back to their own destinations and replicate the framework, you know, the model that, that they've done. I think that when you do something like this, you're actually giving people a way to develop a personal relationship with nature. And when you become a champion of nature and you develop that personal relationship, then you're going to do everything you can to protect it. If you're disjointed from it and you're living in, a, in another realm or another, you know, an urban a big urban center removed from nature in your day-to-day -day life most of the time. Um, and then if you're materialistic and material-driven, as most people are in this world, that there's such a detachment from the essence of the culture and of the nature that it's, it's really easy to not worry about killing one more of anything even a human for that matter. And we're seeing that broadly, uh, you know, every day in some countries now. Right, right. And you know, another thing that comes to mind is that poachers are people. And at some point they were young. You, you have children and, and grandchildren and, and come into contact with young people. How do you talk about sustainability and sustainability and travel with them? Well, you, you, I talk to them, um, you know, just like we're talking now. You talk to them about 
about the importance of um, every living thing, whether it's a pretty living thing, like your favorite puppy, or um, it's a it's a some kind of animal that scares you. You know, <laughs> it's, it's either whatever way you're approaching it, you have to um, teach respect. And I I will give my mother credit for that because she always always taught me that she always said you know be kind and i had a great teacher in mexico and i'll just tell you this tell you this little story related to that if you like the teacher's name was was master mao and he was um, a spiritual teacher a beautiful beautiful soul he he transcended about five years ago now and i remember one time we came in we came in off the beach, we were at a meditation and we came in and, and there was a cockroach in, in my kitchen, uh, where, where I was living at the time in near Playa del Carmen in Mexico. I was there on a, on a project for the, uh, Mexico tourist board. And, and I, and I did everything I could to try to kill this this cockroach. I mean, it was, you know, to me, it was just a disgusting thing that, you know, ha had no right to live in my kitchen, right? And, and Mao took me over. And he said, that's really bad behavior. He said, so I want to show you, I want to show you how you deal with this. So I said, oh, okay, fine, you know, and, uh, and we sat down on the floor near the cockroach. And it's like the cockroach just stood there and was looking at us and couldn't understand what all the noise was about when I was chasing it around the kitchen. And Master Mao said, you know, Mr. Cockroach, Michael here doesn't like you in the kitchen very much. And he would really appreciate it if you and your family just left the kitchen and you know found another place to live because you can see he gets pretty upset about that and we're kind of laughing a bit but the but the lesson was not so subtle right and and then he said now what don't you have to apologize and he looked at me and i'm like to a cockroach he said the cockroaches consider the cockroaches you Consider now that you are that cockroach. What would you say after you made all this noise, chased this poor little critter around the kitchen, did everything you could to try to kill it, and then now you have a chance to uh, make amends? So I apologized to the Mr. Cockroach, and I and I reiterated what Master Mouse said. I'm sorry. I don't have anything personal against you. I just don't want you in my kitchen. And I would really appreciate it if you and your family went somewhere else and, and don't come back. And then I opened the door and this cockroach went out the door and I watched it go down the steps and disappeared into the bushes, into the jungle. And to this day, I had never seen another cockroach in that in that villa ever wow ever that's profound. and that 
and that so once you trade places with that animal you know when you look at when you look at life that all life is equal not all races are equal not all colors not all religion everything that lives is equal whether it's a plant or a person or a rhinoceros or a lion that changes you forever and that sure changed me that little episode with master mao wonderful wonderful now a topic i hear you talk about often is greenwashing and i thought this would be a, a good chance to say what it is what it is not and perhaps advice to travelers so that they can know how to spot it yes absolutely wesley what in order to set up the understanding of this if i may i want to do a couple of things um you know as as you know I, we recently uh, conducted a major research program in the United States uh, for climate and sustainable travel. It was the first study that was done like this that I'm aware of. And what we found out is that 67% um, of Americans believe that the climate crisis is real. 67%. I, I don't know what expectation I had, but I don't believe it was nearly that high. I didn't think that many people understood it. And the reason I say that is because, because they don't act like they understand it. So there's more research showed us that they may, um, they may say that and they may believe that, but they don't necessarily act on it. And that's really the job that we have, isn't it? So one of the things that we did ask was on the question of greenwashing. So what we did in this research is we didn't assume, first of all, that, that people knew what greenwashing was. We said, we're going to give you a definition, what, which we believe is a technical definition for greenwashing, okay? And then we're going to ask you if you are aware of greenwashing according to that definition so it's a it's a very clear yes or no there's no gray area on this one either they they understand it and they're aware of it or they don't so the definition that we created was an attempt to knowingly deceive people into believing that a company location product or service is doing more to protect the environment than they actually are. So just to repeat it, an attempt to knowingly deceive people into believing that a company, location, product or service is doing more to protect the environment than they actually are. And then we ask the question, are you aware of greenwashing? 40% said that, yes, I'm aware of greenwashing. But that means 60% are not aware. And that's a, that's a big problem. Right. When you, when you travel, or it doesn't have to be travel, 
I mean, if you if you go to buy a can of tuna at the at the market, or as I did yesterday, my wife and I go to the farmer's market every week, and there's a, a sign on the tomato, you know, that they are farm fresh tomatoes. When I asked the farmer, they said, well, no, our, our uh, tomato crops are not out yet. We're another couple of weeks away. So then who's uh, so then who owns these tomatoes? Who grew these tomatoes? Well, they're, they're basically grown somewhere else and transported here. So, you know, that, that to me is greenwashing. I mean, if you have a little sign on it that said our tomatoes aren't ready, but we, we bought you the best ones we could from California or wherever, then I get the chance as a consumer to say yes or no. Right. Okay, I, I accept them or I don't. And I think greenwashing, when you're talking about travel in particular, is really difficult because most people don't understand how travel is is created and all the elements of it. You know, they maybe know about an airplane and they might know about an airport shuttle. And they, of course, they know about the hotel. But there's a lot of elements in a typical destination trip, including the destination itself, that might not be telling you the truth. And a lot of it is misrepresentation where people, as an example, and I give you an example with uh, with canned, because I mentioned it before, with canned fish. Organizations that are factory farming fish, and they have these huge, huge ships that just you know destroy the bottom of the ocean when they're scraping up fish in these huge nets, and then they're you know basically doing all everything on board canning all the way from cleaning and right to canning and storage and freezing right on the ship while this kind of organizations create uh, themselves a label that says that basically that this fish is caught with you know sustainable methods or fair trade methods and that it's it's a sustainable product and you can tell that because our logo is here well we find out when we did some investigating and a movie called seaspiracy on netflix came out that a lot of these organizations just pay their own third party labeler for their for the use of that label so then when when Wesley or Mike go to the far, to the, to the to the grocery store and you buy something and you look for that label and you say I did good as a consumer I did a good job I I look for a label that said you know fresh sustainable methods um, catching farming whatever it is and then you find out that the whole thing is a is a facade and that's what you have to watch for and you have to verify. And we say the power of the consumer who's looking for sustainable travel or sustainability generally is to ask for verification. What is the method? Another example close to home. I have a local grocer where I buy fish, or at least I was buying fish, not anymore. And 
a particular salmon that comes from your area, Faroe Island salmon. And I ask about that. You know, is this a sustainable, you know, is this is this a sustainable fish? Is it a product that has sustainable stock? Like they're, you know, they're it's not overfishing or anything. And then I found out that Greenland and Norway just entered a 12-year moratorium to not fish that salmon. And then I can buy it on the grocery store anywhere in Canada. So, you know, again, verify. You ask the question. You you sometimes press for the answer, and sometimes they don't like it. But it's that's my responsibility because sustainability is very personal. Right. And you do have a lot of labels, um, in, including in, in travel. I, I can't tell you how many certification bodies I've, I've come across, but I can also tell you that none of the travelers that have come to Zimbabwe through my organization have ever heard about Global Sustainable Tourism Council, for example, which, which is our go-to body as, as people within the, the, the sector. And so I, I find myself thinking, if I were not in the industry myself, how would I verify you know, that this is a sustainable uh, travel agency or hotel? Because it is easy to put an echo label um, or fair trade, which are terms that you know we'll get into later. But I think it's worthwhile to spend a little time figuring out how best travelers can find out perhaps pre-travel or while they're traveling, um, how sustainable and, and what about it is, is, is sustainable. Right. And, um, you know, great question. Great question, Wesley. I, and I and I have to tell you, this is why this is the main reason that we created the um, the Nest program, the Niagara Escarpment for Sustainable Travel as a living laboratory, because we need to find out these answers. I mean, you know, as an example, you mentioned you mentioned the Global Sustainable Tourism Council. OK, great, great certification program. How does that relate to the vocabulary that a travel agent is using to sell me a trip to, you know, a trip to Zimbabwe? Exactly. I mean, and the truth is it doesn't. There's disconnects. So where did we start? We, we created this, this program in the UNESCO biosphere because of our belief system. So we said, first of all, we believe that climate change and sustainability are personal issues, personal issues. So if it's personal, then you have to give people the tools so that they can verify things, exactly what you're saying, and not in some macro United Nations over the top, you know, way that the average person uh, doesn't have the, um, the vocabulary to understand a lot of, you know, a lot of what's happening at these big organizations. And as we found out, a lot of the big organizations don't understand what they're saying either. So that's part of the problem. So we believe it's personal. We believe that travel is doing significant damage to the planet. Uh, 
And that's a given. No matter what part of travel you're in, there's damage being done. And so, you know, we have to have the ability for people to look at different elements of a, of a journey and say, okay, what's the worst? Well, the worst one is air travel. And we know that. Okay, so immediately, how can you mitigate the damages done by air travel? Well, the truth is, there are a lot of things that science are working on now, like, like synthetic aviation fuel and aviation fuel additives and things like that. But they're a way a long way off. But United Airlines just announced that they purchased a fleet of supersonic aircraft that are going to make a lot more sense when it comes to sustainability, sustainable travel, the reduction of carbon, et cetera, et cetera. Well, according to the current science, apparently these things are not going to be available for a few years or four or five years even, but there isn't enough current science to prove what they're saying is that they're going to be more sustainable. In fact, they're going to be they're going to have a higher carbon footprint because of the altitudes and the speeds that they fly at and the volume of people that they carry. So, you know, you're better to go low and slow. So if you have a, an option, don't fly. I decided consciously I am not flying for the next year until we get, get a handle on this, on this climate crisis. I'm just not going to fly. I, I have business trips that I have to go to. I figure I've already put them off for almost a year and a half. They can wait a little bit longer. You know, they can wait longer for, for, for Mother Earth. Um, another thing is, as an example, what we eat. Okay, meat is one of the biggest producers of methane and, you know, one of the, uh, the supply chain probably in agriculture, the second largest producer of, of carbon um, per capita based on people's consumption of their personal food. So I stopped eating meat. Now I'm going to go meatless. And by, you know, I figure in about 90 days, I'll adjust to it and then I'll become a vegetarian. And I'll probably be better off because I'll be eating plants more. And that's, and that's, direct from nature without going through, you know, to get my protein or to get my uh, minerals or vitamins to go through the process of having an animal eat it and then kill the animal and then eat the animal. I can just go right to the plants and eat it directly. So those are two things that I'm doing personally. I'm, I'm, I'm living what I'm advocating um, relative to the living laboratory in the nest the idea is to is to figure these things out so the questions you're asking are not just relevant questions but they're critical questions that people really want answers to because they want to do the right thing i think most people want to do the right thing and if they can do something to help mother earth and uh still travel then there's an ideal relationship right there because we do right. need economy. 
Right, right. And just the other day, two days ago, actually, I was listening to a World Nomads podcast, and the CEO of Intrepid was was on it. And Intrepid is one of the leading uh, organizations in, in in small group travel when it comes to sustainability. I mean, ma- mainstream sustainability. And so I found what he said interesting. He said that travelers don't want to be bothered by carbon offsets. They don't want to be bothered by such talk or being shamed into, they don't want to feel guilty. And it made me think, I'm speaking to Michael in in a few days. I'm going to pose a question to him regarding how people make travel choices. And you've been you've been around the block for a while now. Does that resonate with with you as a practitioner in the industry, as well as wearing your hat um, as a traveler? Well, absolutely. First of all, let me let me take my hat off to Intrepid Travel because you're right. They are they are they are doing it. They they have always leaned forward when it comes to sustainable travel. You know, I mean, let's be honest about one thing. I wasn't always a sustainable traveler or I wasn't always in that mindset. You know, these are things that as you as you age and you get more experience and you start to see the bigger picture of of life, then you understand that um, if you're going to, you know, I mean, we recycle. We recycle everything. You know, it the garbage goes into a composter. The you know the cans go here. The plastics go there. The papers go there. All of these things are recycled, and and we're doing a good job. But that's because we elected people who were in the mindset of conservation in that area. Yet that's number one. You have to elect people to do these things, and you have to have leaders that believe in it. And Intrepid is is certainly uh, a leader in that field. I, I really, I really think that this whole carbon offset thing is a big scam, for the most part. My, you know, my belief is that it's driven by guilt, as you say, uh, you know, as you just mentioned, that. If, if I can convince somebody to, to give me money to relieve their guilt so that they can go and damage the world, well, look, at we just saw it today. Okay, here's Richard Branson. He just had his first sub, suborbital launch. And, you know, what's he saying in the in the in the press conference after the launch you know that there everybody's reading his talking points that you know he's done a lot for the oceans he's done a lot for humanity he's an environmentalist well how can you be an environmentalist on tuesday and then on sunday you know blow a bunch of carbon up into the atmosphere you know for what it's the same with elon musk 330,000 plus carbon units generated on every takeout on every rocket launch okay and and so you're you're telling somebody that you're all about sustainability but then you know you're you're doing all this damage 
on the way out as you slam the door on Mother Earth, if you take that that money, you take the money that Bezos has from Amazon, Musk, Elon Musk has, and Richard Branson has, and you you go and buy the Amazon jungle or a big chunk of it and put it into uh, a trust and make sure nobody tears it down and burns it anymore. Now you're doing something really, really good. What are you doing? You're going to make it affordable for the average tourist to go up in space. Who gives a damn? Like, you know, you're trying to save a rhinoceros today on the ground. And these guys are talking about, you know, Elon Musk, in an interview on Clubhouse not long ago, talked about the fact that they're going to Mars. And somebody said, well, but I thought Mars was cold and people, humans couldn't live there. He said, no, don't worry. We're going to go there and warm it up. No, no. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Quote, unquote. No, no, don't worry. We're going to go there and warm it up. Just like they're warming up Mother Earth. You know, doesn't make any sense to me. So this is what I mean about consciousness. You're either all in or you're all out. But don't bullshit anybody. Right. No, you're you're spot on on that. And, you know, the the, the question you pose as well is for what? Um, we we and by the way, to everybody who could be listening to this, when we talk about sustainable travel, we are not talking about going up in space. Um, that that's definitely not what we're talking about. I thought we should absolutely, be clear, absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. And so, Michael, looking back. And I, I like your 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 admission that not I don't think anyone has always been um, a sustainable traveler, nor a, a sort of adopted sustainability in the way that they they live. I know it it, t- it took me a while until I got to the point where I wanted and and pursued Zimbabwean cotton, for example. Um, because it was always an easier choice to go for made in China. And when I think about travel now, I can't help but think the pandemic has happened. It has shaped your way of thinking as well. And moving forward, how can people begin to think about where to go, how to get there, you know, what to do once they're there? And I know you're passionate about culture. And so how can they incorporate these things, particularly at this point when the pandemic has forced us all to take a pause, reflect, and and plan ahead? Well, um, another good question, Wesley. Obviously, you're doing your homework every day. So I think that's, that's wonderful. I love that. You're very conscious about what you do, and it shows. I think that, you know, um, interestingly, that we had some some bad things happen years ago. The world uh, suffered. The first one that really hit uh, in a big way uh, the current generations was 9/11, when um, you know the attacks on the World Trade Center in the, in New York City. That completely shut travel down, and in particular, it shut air travel down immediately 
throughout the whole U.S. In fact, if you ask astronomers what were the greatest views, the clearest views of the sky they ever saw, it's when there was no air traffic in the United States because of 9-11. But 9-11 was, was a real shock to people. Um, because since World War II, there really hadn't been anything, um, you know, that, that affected everybody in, in so many different places. The next thing that we had a big problem with in 2008, I guess it was, 2008 and 10, or sorry, 2003, we had SARS. And SARS was um, an epidemic that was a precursor and a wake-up call for the pandemic that we suffered. But most people didn't get the message. Okay, they didn't. They just didn't get that. That what what could happen to us um, in Ontario and British Columbia and Canada? We we went through hell with that. So we were, you know, we were somewhat prepared. Um, maybe mentally more than anything in some cases, and I'll explain what I mean. And then we had the economic uh, crash in 2008 and the recession through to 2010 and on. Those three events um, gave us specific roadmaps on how to recover from the current pandemic. The secret from a destination marketing point is Hyper-local, local tourism will be the first tourism back. Regional, provincial, state, and national markets, the second wave back. And then international markets will take three to five years. Uh, that's my calculation uh, based on everything I've seen and studied. So we knew that, that that's how travel was going to come back. At the same time, we we're seeing because everything was shut down, you know, that the theme parks and all the normal tourist uh, over tourist type destinations, mass market overcrowding, those destinations are going to be uh, people are going to have deep generational scars about going into big places like that with a lot of people around them. I believe certainly they should have whether they they all do or not. And then nature, anything that's nature bound and nature, um, you know, friendly, that's where people are going. And that's where they kept going all through the pandemic, right from the beginning. And we track that through smart data tracking to see what the conservation areas were like. And they were doing five and 10 times the amount of of local tourism than they than they ever did, but that's because people were not able to go to the other places and they were reluctant to go if they could go. So you know that's what happened. So I think that the indicators for where you want to go, where people are going now, as they tell us, they want to go to nature, they want to go to authenticity, they want to go to culture. They want to go to small towns and villages that are off the beaten path. They want local food. They want all those things that you and I have been enjoying for the last 20 years and looking for it 
as sustainable travel options and encouraging the growth of that kind of product, but responsibly, that's what people are looking for. So that's the first step. Where are you going to go? You, you want to go to nature. The flip side of that, so now we know where the demand is and, and what the demand people are looking for, what kind of products and services. Now, if you're the supplier and you're in an eco-sensitive area, if the ecosystem in, in your region is a delicate ecosystem, now you have a potential problem. And the problem is overcapacity will destroy your product. Overcapacity will destroy your destination. So the thing that you cherish most and have worked your whole career to protect is going to be heavily sought after and not necessarily by the right type of tourist. In the environment that we're creating um, for study in the living laboratory, as we talked about in the biosphere, the secret is to teach people the, the equilibrium of sustainable travel, because there's an equilibrium, there's a rhythm. The Maya, and I've worked with the Maya in, in Yucatan and Mexico for years, the Maya talk about circular time. You know, they don't they don't believe in in linear time the way we do in in you know appointment books and calendars and you know filling your day full of things that are going to consume you. They believe in a rhythm that's related to nature and the stars and the rain and when you plant seeds and when you harvest. Everything in their life has a cycle. Everything is in circular time. And that's what you have to be if you're going to go there. You know, um, I, again, in the old days, I remember when, you know, an all-inclusive hotel resort was the big thing for me, right? Because that's, that's what people offered. And that's what you knew. Once I started changing my perception of what I enjoy, once I became conscious that instead of talking to a, a Maya who's a waiter in an all-inclusive 5,000-room resort in somewhere in the world, I want to see where he lives. I want to see where, you know, where her family is. I want to see, I want to see how they grow their food. You know, I want to see the, the, the ancient cultural sites of the Maya, which, you know, all these kinds of things, every place on earth used to be indigenous. Many still are. Um, the fact is that even in the built up areas, there's a cultural community somewhere and you can find that. So that's to me how you begin. You begin by slowing down. You begin by looking for people and products and services and experiences that are authentic, that are of the land and of the culture, and particularly the indigenous culture. And then you do your best not to do any damage to the ecosystem while you're there. And those are kind of 
the way that I would approach and do approach travel now. Brilliant, brilliant. And you, you speak so fondly of your time in, in Mexico and obviously you live in, in Canada. Are there other destinations where you found such a connection? I, I, I make sure that I look for that connection. You see, that's, that's the key thing. And you hit it right on the head, Wesley. When I had to be in Vietnam years ago for the Canadian, um, for the Canadian government and a university that I was working at, um, it was just after uh, the President Clinton in the U.S. had lifted the embargo against Vietnam. And um, I, was, I was asked if I would go and facilitate a um, tourism conference, for lack of a better word. And, and my um, objective while I was there was really to uh, help people, help heal, in a way, the different um, political, geopolitical, structures that that are in North and South Vietnam and uh, try to um, somehow bring a common understanding about the importance of hospitality and tourism. So that's that's really why we went there. So the first thing I did was I rented, I talked to I, some young guys at the front desk in the hotel we were staying at. And I found a young guy who had a motorcycle and I made a deal with him. And so every day I would, I would rent the motorcycle and I would just drive somewhere on this motorcycle. No clue where I was. We were in Hanoi. I had no, not the first inkling of which direction to go or why. I just every day got on and I said, okay, today I'm going west. And I went west and I got lost, but eventually I made it back. And the next day I am going south and I went south and the same thing. And then I tried to learn something about what the culture was. The first day of this workshop, we go into this beautiful, ornate, um, look like a theater of some type. I learned later it was a political theater you know, for, for, um, for government. And there were all men sit on, sat, sat on one side of the theater, and then all men sat on the other side of the theater. During the course of the, the, you know, the three days of workshops, they didn't never looked at each other. And by the, the second end of the second day, I, I, I was just frustrated. I was so frustrated because I said to the coordinator of the workshop, who was a, a high-ranking government official, I said, you know, I just can't seem to get anybody to move, not, not move about an idea or a concept or an ideology or anything. It's just the right is over there, the left's over there, and they don't even look at each other. So tell me what I'm missing. And she said, well, okay. She said, the first thing you have to understand is these are all general managers of hotels. I said, okay. But general managers of hotels where I come from are a little more friendly than these guys. 
she said yes but you know until the war ended they were mostly all generals or officers in the military and after they didn't need him in the war anymore they had to make him something in a civilian post so they made him hotel general managers so most of these are military people Oh, I said, now you're going to tell me half of them are from North Vietnam and the other. She, she said, exactly. Right. So I said, okay. I said, okay, now how are we going to solve this one? I said, well, this is way out of my wheelhouse, but let me let me think. So then I started asking, how's the, how's the country structured now? And what we found after several hours of, of brainstorming is that Vietnam is actually eight distinct regions and a couple of those regions actually are both in north and south vietnam and so what i did is worked with the organizers and we rearranged the theater so when they came in in the morning they weren't north and south vietnam they were seated by region even if they were formally in the north or the south and immediately the tension was gone out of the room and we started to plan for travel and i thought that that was you know i look back on that as one of those defining defining things that happens to you if you really want to find the heart and soul of sustainable travel you have to dig in find the culture and even if i'm on a business trip and keep in mind most of my career was business i would begin and end with culture for sure if i couldn't include it for two or three days or whatever the period of time was that i was there on a conference or a presentation then i would begin i would find an archaeologist i would hire an archaeologist or make a deal with the university i would say I'm going to come two days early. Can you take me to the, the most important archaeological sites in, in your area? Then a biologist and, you know, another tour of a couple of days. And I did this uh, as an example in, in the Dominican Republic. I did this at La Romana. By the time you get to the business part of it, you really understand the place. And if you understand the place, then you understand the importance of, of the culture and the people. And that, to me, is the, the secret to, to finding it. Even if you're going, if I'm going to New York City, if I have to go to New York City, I will find the culture. That's my responsibility. Wonderful. Wonderful. And as a family man, when, when you and your wife were with, uh, extended family or friends were choosing uh, travel travel trips you know were they different from your business trips in any way um for the most part no i mean and i say that i say that um i would tend to want to take my children when they, you know, when they were a little older to travel. I mean, not, not, I mean, not old, but, you know, not young little kids. Young little kids, 
that's usually you're going to some typical tourist kind of place, um, you know, maybe a Disneyland kind of thing because the kids that's what kids want mm -hmm. my daughter was never all that interested my son still goes with his family to disney he's got two two kids now and and they go but they go camping at disney's campsites and you know that's the kind of thing they like doing my daughter's much more into the culture because she used to travel with me to mexico and so she was exposed to cultural travel um you know through me uh, when she was when she was you know really fairly young, so I think what you know the the um, the differences to the destination where you're going, and also how much time you have. But one of the things that we learned um, in I worked on a research team with Longwoods International, which is the top travel marketing research organization um, in the United States. And um, when I worked with them, we actually did some major research that uncovered what we call the combined business and pleasure traveler. Early on, it was always understood that, um, that travel was either for pleasure or for business. That those were the, the extent pretty much of the, um, you know, of the two types of traveler. The differences. Then there was an understanding that visiting friends and relatives was a big part of what we call the leisure travel, um, you know, method segment. So what we found in the research was that people actually will go on a trip for business, but extend the trip and, you know, look for other things to do not related to the business trip, of course. And they could be cultural things, they could be simple as golfing, you know, in a in a place that a uh, climate at the time of year that that lets you do that. So I think the, you know, the difference is, is that the concept of sustainable travel and the impacts are, you know, they're, they're linear, the more you are exposed to that, the more you you look for that and then the one feeds the other and that also affects the people you're with so your choices of destinations as you get older are much much more involved in that planning and even to this day when when our kids go away um you know they 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 look for that culture now and their kids as a result have looked for that you know, since they were really, really young. So it's all, you know, it's all related to the teachers and it's all related to the exposure you have. If your family is uh, driven by culture or sees culture as a natural part of your conscious life every day, then you're, that's what you're going to look for. And uh, even when you go to more urban centers or busy places, you know, you, you want to go to the museums, you know, you go, if you go to Mexico city, as an example, the first thing that I recommend to anybody is they go to the, to the uh, museum of anthropology. It's one of the greatest museums anywhere, but you spend a day in that museum and you find the history of the culture 
and the uh, archaeology and even the ecosystem. You know, Mexico, not many people know this, but Mexico is roughly five, five and a half percent of the world's land mass, but it's over 12 percent of the world's uh, biodiversity. So, you know, it that that in itself tells you what your expectation should be when you go there. Right. That, right. That helps you to understand that. So just things like that. That's what you learn. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, you know, one thing that you mentioned as you were speaking there was impact. And I, I am a stickler for, for, for measuring and applying science, which is why I find your rooms on Clubhouse um, very fascinating. Because as well, you're, you're quick to call BS on people who just want to spew out um, opinions as facts and, and, and when it's not science-based. And I, I'm, I'm the designated sustainability manager at work. So I'm the guy who's always, you know, asking those, those, those questions. And I wonder how you would advise travelers. Uh, you can start with travelers and you can go to other businesses involved in travel on how we can begin to measure, you know, the, the impact. Impact of, of you, whether your initiatives, you know, we talked about some people call it fair trade. Some people call it responsible travel. Just uh, two days ago, I heard people referring to it as clean travel. You know, it has it comes by many names, sustainable travel being the predominant one. But there are all these other ones, meaningful travel, travel with purpose. And I've found myself using some of these terms. But there is also no consensus when it comes to the, the measuring and, and what we are supposed to be measuring, whether we are travelers or we are travel businesses. Well, what's your take on that? Well, again, um, if, if, you, if you talk to the organizations such as, um, you know, EarthCheck or, again, Global Sustainable Travel Council or... Um, even the United Nations with the SDGs. This has been our biggest complaint in verification is the gap. The gap between the travel experience and all of these so-called scientific frameworks and structures. And that's why we're, you know, we're measuring and we're verifying what is really verifiable. Because if you're, you know, if you if you just want to razzle dazzle somebody, you know, like like Muhammad Ali used to say, I razzle and I dazzle and I, you know, I confuses them and then bang, I hit him, right? <laughs> if that's your if you just want to razzle dazzle and you wanna you wanna give people the BS, then it doesn't really matter what you say because you don't have any any soul in what you're saying anyway. Okay. But I think that the gap is so big between these macro organizations and their inability to deliver. And give you an example, World Tourism and Travel Council, okay? They talked about six or eight or nine months ago, a travel passport for vaccination, a vaccination passport, all right? And, and they came up with these really strict 
guidelines for what a destination is that is, let's call it COVID proof. All right. And, and I don't see either one of those things ever happening. You know, first of all, um, I saw them hold a major world conference in a place that a week later was shut down. I saw uh, countries talk about, including Canada, our own, my Canada here, our prime minister talk about a vaccine passport, which has no clue what that's going to look like or, or, or how to even, how to even um, monitor such a thing. So the gaps between the, you know, the, the, the person that's saying, uh, dictating how something has to be. And then, you know, the average person running an operation in Zimbabwe who has to then try to deliver on this promise in order to not be greenwashing, you're already finished and in trouble just trying to follow and interpret the codes and interpret these frameworks. They're just too, they're just too unachievable. And in fact, United Nations are starting to wake up to that right now. As I say in the Sustainable Travel Hub, we're not naive. We even know that of the 11 SDGs that we have selected with UNESCO in order to create in our, in our laboratory, in our living laboratory, we already know that in two or three years, some of those are going to be redundant and some of those are going to change. So then we're scaling them down to the point of what's going to be manageable, what's going to be real, and how do I go to somebody like Wesley and his organization in Zimbabwe and say, look it, if you follow this framework, you'll be on a good, solid path to sustainability that won't bankrupt your company having to get there and won't take all your resources away from what you should be working on. And I think that's a big difficulty. If a company is going to be carbon neutral by 2030, you're like, what does that really mean? And more important, what does it mean to your customer? And then how, how, how responsible is your customer in that equation as well? And that's why we, come, we came up with this, this term that we like, which is called soulful travel. We believe that the secret segment that people should be creating as travel destinations and marketing and then um, sustainable travel customers looking for is called soulful travel. So we have a definition of that. Soulful travel is marked by love and compassion while traveling. So the first thing is love and compassion while traveling. I mean, just that part alone is something that doesn't exist in 90% of the, the mass market travel that happens today. Also, an acute awareness of the consequences of travel and dedication to sustainable action that will preserve the planet for future generations. So you have a responsibility to yourself on what you're buying and to the host destination for what you're consuming. Now, when you look at the big picture, 
we ask people, do you identify as a soulful traveler? And 55% of the survey results said, yes, we, we believe that we identify and that we are soulful travelers. Well, if that's the case, then we're, we're on the right track. But I would suggest that there's a gap between people who may idealistically see themselves as a soulful traveler, perhaps not realistically, and destinations and products that are befitting a soulful traveler. That, that's out of whack. And that's, what we're, that's the gap that we're trying to figure out. How do we get those two, two things closer? Because if you look at the, the 67% of people who believe there's a crisis in climate, 67%, but then you look at the fact that only 28% actually discuss sustainability and sustainable travel with their friends and families, there's the gap. So right. why, we, why we did this research was to find out if if the the concepts that we have that we've identified in the sustainable travel hub through conversations through years of research through years of working in the industry and through years of fighting for sustainable travel is that is is that just some naive concept that we have that i carry around with me at my old older you know kind of uh, romantic years in my life that i want everything to you know be good and clean and pure and nice again is that just a, a naive concept or do people really think that climate is serious that there's a big problem and 67% said yes we agree there's a problem well then how come only 28% of you are talking about it I don't have to look at anything else except that gap to know that we've got a big job to do and we're running out of time. Right, right. And, and I'm right there with you. Uh, it, is, it is a massive gap that we have to continuously work at in order to reduce that gap. And I'm hoping that, you know, in our lifetime, we're able to, you know, curb the, the, the gap and we, we, can, we can talk about it. Um, and maybe a solution to that will, will be transferable to another uh, problem that we might face. Are there destinations or cities that you've traveled to more than twice, whether for leisure or for, for, for business, that you know, uh, stick with you now, uh, the, the experiences there? Yeah, I mean, every 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 destination is unique because every culture is unique and every biosphere or biodiversity is unique in every culture. So um, that's why if somebody says to you, like, and they often ask me, what's your favorite destination? I mean, that's like saying, what's your favorite child, right? It's impossible. Apparently right? it's not. Uh, I'm not a parent yet myself, man. My wife and I don't have kids yet, but I am told uh, by some parents that, you know what? That, that is my favorite. That's a close second. And that one is sort of, you know, they're still my child and I love them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, they they say that, but, you know, the truth is, is that you, you couldn't, you know, you can't do it. It's not it's like tough, picking huh? a puppy. Yeah, 
I mean, if it, because the reason why is because your children have your DNA. So you're, you're, you know, you're discriminating against yourself if you by saying that, right? So, um, no, I, I, I think that um, for me, I have, I have been fortunate to spend a lot of time in, in Mexico and particularly uh, throughout Mexico. In, in the 1990s, um, I first went to Mexico to, to um, help them on a research strategy to figure out, you know, how they should grow their tourism. And through research, uh, in advance of my trip with them, the first meetings with them, I found that Mexico has a really unique indigenous culture, a really unique uh, indigenous culture compared to most of the culture in, in North America, let's say. And that the Maya, the Aztecs, the Toltecs, the Olmecs, all of these ancient cultures in particular built, um, you know, amazing archaeology sites. They, they have, uh, you know, they were brilliant mathematicians and astronomers. They were, um, they were actually, I was just reading in, in an article in a scientific journal that the, that the writers of this article are um, saying that if we really want to save Mother Earth, we need to go back to the indigenous methods. We need to stop trying to manage the indigenous cultures and eradicating them, and we need to start learning from them, which is going to be a big part of the um, indigenous strategy that we are, we're working with in the, in the Biosphere Reserve now in Niagara. So I would say that Mexico was my greatest teacher of culture. You know, there are 67 different indigenous tribal nations throughout Mexico. 80% um, of them are living in abject poverty. The reality of most of the indigenous cultures is that, as you said early on, the elders are dying off and with them the languages, the traditions, and the customs. And if we work hard, as we've done in many cases in, in Yucatan, and create culture-based products that keep people in their communities, that they don't have to go and be a laborer in, in some you know, big hotel company uh, for hardly any wages and leave their homes and, and try to become something that they don't need to be, if they can earn good income and feed their family and learn to grow food again and follow their traditional customs, they've got everything they need in their communities. But if we take all the laborers out of all these communities, you know, and leave, uh, you know, a village full of women with no nobody to help them, as has happened in many of the Yucatan communities, the men all go and work in a tourism industry for uh, low wages, you know, comparatively, and then the women are stranded. And then if these if a lot of these men never come back, and they don't send money back, who's going to look after these villages, they're just going to die off. 
And when they die, the elders die first, the culture, the language, everything goes. So I would say that that Mexico has been a great, a great teacher of that. And um, yeah, yeah, Mexico right. for me. Right. And you, you say something that I always also find in that often we go to a place and we end up being impacted more ourselves from that experience. And there's this exchange that happens that's very difficult to usually put in words on a website. Um, and and you have to you have to live through it, you know. And I want to pick up on as as we conclude this on the NEST program. And I don't think I would have done our audience uh, justice. I, and I also, I don't know if it is yet completely ready for you to, to talk about, but I want to find out what a provisional possible itinerary will look like uh, for people who want to, to come out to you. Perfect. Well, I, you know, I, I, I'm honored that, that you, would, uh, you would ask for um, some, you know, more understanding of that. So the Niagara Escarpment, um, which is, you know, as I mentioned, this over 700 kilometer ribbon of land, uh, which is naturally formed after the Ice Age, um, when the glaciers retreated, and they carved out, which is which today is Lake Ontario, um, as part of the Great Lakes. And the escarpment is actually the banks, the original banks, uh, which are um, 500 million years old. So that's the rock formation, 500 million years old. So the idea is that is that in there's within this Niagara escarpment uh, in the Nest program, our idea is to is to work on two critical elements: the indigenous cultures and the biodiversity, the ecosystems. And, and so we define, we're defining those things, as I mentioned, in a, in a framework that people can subscribe to. And they can, they can realistically look at this and say, okay, you know, as of today, I, I maybe um, am 50% of that. I can, I can say that I'm honestly, you know, I, I honestly qualify 50% of that. And then I can I can put another ten percent into that, you know, certification, um, self certification for the next five years. So that'll give me my my hundred percent. The idea, as an example, right now we're working on um, a um, an indigenous tour. So this indigenous tour which launches, this actually launches in, um, in two weeks when our next round of COVID restrictions lifts. We're going into phase three now, which allows for some of this to start happening. So people now um, will, will gather in, uh, in an area, in a historic natural place. They will gather with um, an indigenous entertainers, indigenous troupe, 
and the local indigenous people and the tribal nation, and they'll be taught. So this particular place was is a colonial house, a colonial homestead that was created in 1834. And it was created by uh, the Alexander Hamilton family, by a by a relative from that family uh, in the United States who moved here, which is now Canada. Now, we've done about 20 archaeology digs on this property over the years in different places, and we've identified indigenous first people, first contact, 11,000 years ago. And we have artifacts and sites on the property. So as people come here, they come to what we call on common ground. That's the theme of this whole tour. So everywhere they go, they're going to learn who the indigenous were, what they did, what the various campsites were for. This was on a, on a route that was a trading route. So everybody camped there. It wasn't a permanent campsite by the indigenous, but it was a, a seasonal campsite. And when people were coming and going, that's where they stayed. And then you go into the escarpment further and you go into different areas. Each area has a different indigenous quality or tribal nation that was first there. So the first thing you do is you learn their story. Then you talk about the geology. Then you talk about the archaeology or the history. And then you, you have a chance to actually be involved in a ceremony, some type of ceremony, like in the, in the Willowbank site, as I was mentioning, that's the name of the uh, colonial site, Willowbank in Queenston. We have um, an indigenous garden there that the grandmothers, the indigenous grandmothers plant this. They take care of it and they harvest it and they share all the food with the indigenous family. And um, you get a chance to, to taste some of the things they're making depending on what's in season. So the whole point of the NEST program is to provide non-traditional tourism products and services that have to be indigenous and they have to be, um, you know, eco-culture, biodiversity-centric. And then with those two kind of foundational pieces, then you can have the rest of, you know, you're going to get into some typical tourist kind of activities as well, but it's all going to be done on the foundation of, of what I said. So people are going to go away from this, getting some education, getting some cultural sensitivity, get some understanding about local food, farm to table kind of food experiences, um, you know, being in nature, being in this beautiful, rustic, natural environment. And, um, and then the most important thing about NEST is that we are going to offer this, these findings free of charge to any NGO or any sustainable travel organization that wants to follow the model. And, and it's not, there's no money grab here. You know, we're doing it to preserve nature and to, and then to replicate this, scale it up 
and UNESCO has already asked us if we would consider leading a pilot with four or five other um, national bio UNESCO bio uh, biosphere sites in Canada that are having um, economic trouble because of the lack of tourism, so that they they you know they return to tourism with the right models to deal with. So that's that's kind of a, a bit of an overview of both the idea of the tour, but also, um, you know, and because you're in Niagara Falls, of course, you know, one of the one of the best known tourist destinations in the world, you're going to see Niagara Falls, which is created at the same time the Niagara Escarpment was created, um, you know, 500 million years ago. So there's something for everybody. Wonderful, wonderful. And how can people sign up? Well, um, I think we're we're right now just working on a new website to get people to be able to register for for the newsletter and for information. Uh, the um, the URL for our site is is nes dot travel. So if you look at nes dot travel of course nes nest nes dot travel uh, that's that's the website but we're working on a, another whole um, let's say membership structure website as well and that, wonderful i think wonderful. that will be probably about the next 60 days we'll be launching that fabulous that's fabulous to hear well mike as i let you go and and reflecting on what we've just been talking about, I wonder for the audience if they are, you know, I hate to limit it to two or three things that you want them to take away from this. What what would those things be? Okay, well, the first thing would be to um, to open your hearts to humanity and, and all living species on the planet. Second thing is to be responsible for them, to um, look and, and do some homework. Look at what's happening in Afghanistan now. Look what's happening in um, you know, places like Dakar, climate, Refugees are a real thing right now. Countries are flooding and being lost and lives are being just wasted every day because of what's happening to climate change. The, the big thing with climate change is that if we're living in nice, you know, nice neighborhoods and we have a, a let's say a middle class or wealthy lifestyle and we're thousands of miles away from any direct effects of climate change most people don't give a damn they just they just don't give a damn but what happened in canada last week we have for the first time in british columbia on the west coast of canada temperatures up to 46.9 degrees we have over 200 people dead because of the heat directly from climate change. 
we have forest fires on the West Coast that they've never seen in the history of that part of the country. We have 130 degree temperatures in Death Valley in California that, you know, haven't happened since 2019. That was apparently the highest ever recorded. So, so we have to be, be conscious of it. It's not a negative thing. It's an eye-opening experience. If you Google Dakar and you see where, where people are living in, in, a, in a camp, half a million people, in living in tented camps, you know, and we're worried about a vaccine and these people are worried about their next meal. I mean, that, those are the effects that should empower us as people with a little bit of privilege to do something good, you know, and, and that's what I, I think. So the first thing is open your heart to humanity and nature. The second thing is educate yourself about the reality of, of climate change. And the third thing is, if you're going to travel, travel consciously. Look for the culture. And don't go messing with culture. You know, you know, some people think that I'm going to go somewhere. You know, I'm going to take some clothing for these people. I'm going to give somebody some money. And then I've bought my guilt. Engage with the local culture. You know, try, try to find out who these people are. And, you know, maybe there's something that you can do to help them, even if it's just listening to their story. You know, so that's, those are three things. Profound, Mike. Profound. Thank you, Wesley. Thank it you. Has been, it has been a pleasure. Thank you for being so generous with your time. I, I really appreciate it. I love, I love what you're doing. I love the smile you have on your face, which I couldn't see on Clubhouse, uh, you know, before. I love where you, where you live and, and what you're doing to help your community and your people there and, uh, and deliver sustainability. I think that's, that's huge what you're doing, but, but most of all, I love your, your big heart and, and I love you, my brother. You be good. Thank I'm you. Thank if you, you need, anytime you need me, I'm here. Just call. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. You've been listening to The Hive from Teachers of Sustainable Travel. I hope this episode has inspired you to seek or to continue to explore travel with purpose. Join our community on social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest. And please do subscribe so that you can receive notifications each time we have a new episode. Tatenda, thank you.